Hello and welcome to Indica's Point Blank Show, which is basically an um, excuse for us to spend some time talking to extremely insightful people from around the world. I am your host Aditya, and along with me, I have Abhishek and Niranjana as well for this particular episode. The person who we have on call with us for this episode was only 22 years of age when he completed his PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. He has authored 11 books so far on various subjects. is a current member of Parliament from Tiruvannathapuram in India. is also the Indian Minister of State for External Affairs, and someone who also the media has been picking on for every 140 character that he has been typing on Twitter. The person who we have on phone with us is Dr. Shishi Tharoor. Hello, Dr. Tharoor, and thank you for. being with us on the point blank show i i understand and i completely realize that you are an extremely busy person and so i am going to directly get into the questions now dr thirur you are an extremely eloquent guy you are highly educated you are highly qualified my mother thinks that you are a handsome looking minister you are everything that an indian politician isn't supposed to be or hasn't been so what are you doing in indian politics well, first of all i think that's very unfair Different about all other Indian politicians. I find that lots of Indian politicians who are well-educated, well-spoken, internationally experienced, and good-looking. So, uh, uh, flattered though I am by your praise, I don't think I'm in any way unique. Having said that, I think the whole point about a, a democracy's politics is that it represents the country in all its rich diversity. We should have room in our democracy for people representing various kinds of backgrounds, experiences, ethnicities, languages, class interests, educational backgrounds. That's the sort of thing that uh, a vast country like India should have. I mean, the the famous line of Bill Clinton with his president uh, was that the, his cabinet should look like America, but I think our parliament should look like India. And so, rather than just having one particular kind of, uh, as you seem to imply, stereotyped politician. I think in our democracy, as we grow and mature, we should have room for various kinds of people in the garb of politicians, and I'm delighted to be uh, adding to the mix. Exactly, Mr. Tharoor. We take pride in describing India as the world's largest democracy, and democracy implies that everyone has a right to their own opinion. Mm-hmm. However, in recent times, there have been several instances, whether it's Jaswant Singh's controversial book or your catty class remark. Is there room for individual thought in politics? Well, I mean. Uh, This one seems book is still available. Indeed, it got unbanned in the one state in which it was wrongly banned. And as for me, I'm still in government and still in parliament and still in public life. So, you know, public um, opinion is is large and diverse. There will be some who won't like some of the things we say or do, and uh, we will have to take a few lumps and a few knocks as we go along. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we have become an intolerant society. It means that there are some things uh, which test constantly the limits of our expression. I mean, there is no question that uh, that Mr. Jaswant Singh's party had no room for his view of uh, of Jinnah, uh, and there is uh, a clear indication that uh, a remark, uh, a completely innocent remark from the point of view of an English speaker. Uh, about cattle plus was a phrase used in the question and therefore repeated in my answer sounds very bad when translated into um, 
into other languages. We are a multilingual democracy, and, and the fact is that uh, many people wrongly assumed that there was this arrogant minister dismissing all economy class travelers as cattle. And of course, there were people motivated for political reasons who were trying to peddle such an interpretation of my, of my uh, phrase. That is essentially what... Um, what happened in this particular case, but I would not draw apocalyptic conclusions from that about the society as a whole. I think there is room for expression, and the fact that both the examples you gave me both survived and are continuing and slightly bruised, that's also part of the political experience. And so, Dr. Thiru, do, do you think Indian media or, say, Indian politics lacks a sense of humor? No, I would say that India as a whole has a sense of humor, but that uh, language is an important factor in humor. And in public life, and particularly in political life, jokes that don't translate well across languages will have to be avoided. In fact, uh, some years ago I wrote uh, an essay about the lack of political humor in India, and it's uh, an updated version of it has been published in my last book, The Elephant, the Tiger, and the Cell Phone, uh, lamenting the absence of political humor. But having tried and um, come a cropper myself, I recognize why. <laughs> political humor is so difficult in our democracy. It's because uh, we have a, a lively and thriving media in you know twenty odd different languages who will essentially interpret your joke as their linguistic sensibility uh, teaches them to do, and that could often come at the expense of the joke teller. Well, continuing from uh, this lighter note, uh, how was the transition from wearing a suit and a tie in the UN that you spent twenty years? to learning to tie a dhoti and standing on top of a jeep with uh, frenzied supporters chanting slogans uh, in the <laughs> Kerala heat. How was that all about? Well, tying a dhoti or a munda, as we call it in the south, is something I've done every time I go to Kerala. That was not new, actually. I've been quite frequently uh, uh, seen and photographed, as it were, in Kerala garb, because I used to go to Kerala every year with my family, and I, I still have my grandmother in the old ancestral village, where wearing anything but a munda would be awkward. So, um, so that was not in and of itself a challenge. But certainly standing on the jeep, as you said, or, or various other uh, places, being cheered and, and, and chaired and, and, and held abused at and, and, and addressing audiences of, of thousands um, in a language that I previously only used for casual social conversation. All of that was new and all of that was changed. But it was important for me to do it because, you know, when I first entered politics, I came from this background of somebody who had lived abroad for three decades, who had, you know, had this verified uh, United Nations career, uh, ending up as a... Uh, uh, under Secretary General. Uh, so it was important for me to demonstrate to the voters that uh, I wasn't just that, that I'd done all of those things, but I could also do other things, that I could wear a munda and not just a suit and tie, that I could trudge the hot fields and streets and tea shops of Trivandrum in the hottest month of the year, Same. and not just sit in air-conditioned offices, uh, that I could speak to them in Malayalam uh, from the heart, not the fancy uh, Sahitya Malayalam that the politicians specialized in, but a simple colloquial but nonetheless clear and comprehensible Malayalam, and that I could, in other words, give voice to their concerns credibly. I had to earn the right in my view to represent them, to be in politics, and that's exactly what I uh, have, uh, was able to do through, through uh, my campaign effort. Right, so, so you went in well aware that there are a certain perceptions that probably might be working against you, and you already had some sort of a strategy going forward as to how you're going to be approaching this whole thing. 
Well, no, I came in as people tend to from the outside with the notion of politics as an exercise in principles and ideals and debating the challenges of development. In fact, my initial campaign uh, approach was all um, focused on development of Trivandrum. And in fact, what was interesting was that my opponents, who knew Kerala and Trivandrum well, could have perhaps attacked me on the depth of my understanding of the development challenge of the constituency, but instead they chose to attack me as an individual. And the campaign became one about whether I, as a person, was somebody uh, who could represent the people, which actually in the end turned out to be a very comfortable ground for me to be on because I manifestly was not the kind of person they were caricaturing me as being. And the more the voters saw me and heard me, the more they turned out to be willing to support me. And the result was that I got the best majority that any Congress candidate had got in Trivandrum in over 30 years. But why do you think you took that? I mean, the question that I have for you is that you spent a considerable amount of time in UN before joining Indian politics. Now, did that reputation precede you or help you in any way while you were contesting this election? Well, I think in some ways it uh, both helped and hindered with uh, a certain uh, elite, as it were, that right. I was familiar with. I mean, there were certainly newspaper readers who had seen my name. But by and large, it was a percentage of the electorate that had read my books in translation into Malayalam, that had knew, known of me from newspaper coverage of my previous activities and statements, and therefore perhaps had preconceived notions about me. It seems for the most part positive, though some clearly uh, were inclined to be negative about that experience. Um, but having said that, I was still uh, somebody who had to introduce himself right. to the bulk of the um, of the voters, and that process of introduction involved a process of discovery, which um, fortunately, in the end, turned out to be not unhappy for me when the voters discovered who I was. Well, that's good, and you know, you used internet uh, thoroughly, so reaching out to the young audience wasn't a problem for for you. The educated classes probably had read your books. But how did you manage to reach out to, you know, the housewives or to the grandmothers or to, you know, the, the laborers out there? Through entirely conventional means, because, you know, the Internet uh, approach, we actually had a website and uh, we discovered that uh, from the usage analysis we were getting from the server server provider, that um, only about 10% of those um, using the website were actually from the constituency, or rather, to put it more accurately, that only about... 10% of the electorate were having access to, to the Internet as a means of uh, information. We hoped that that 10% included a lot of media people, and therefore what we were putting out on the Internet was being refracted through them into the general public space uh, through the mass, the mainstream mass media. But uh, otherwise, what we had to do was very conventional direct campaigning. So I went out, I went uh, to a lot of community halls and gatherings, I addressed women's groups, I addressed uh, social service organizations, I addressed community organizations like the Tamil Sangam, the Tamil-speaking voters of my constituency, a uh, very small minority, but nonetheless important. And then I did a lot of the classic going through neighborhoods. Uh, there are two sort of classic approaches. One is you show up at an intersection and you knock on every door and uh, and every tea shop and every hotel and every right. every shop and, and ask for votes, which I did several times, obviously, uh, in various parts of my of my constituency. And the other technique is to uh, go on top of this converted jeep uh, and then stop every few minutes uh, and deliver a two, three-minute speech to the people waiting at pre-designated spots. And a lot of the people waiting were the kinds of people you're talking about, um, middle class and lower class and poor uh, people, including large numbers of women uh, of all ages, including older women. 
and uh, this is how I was able to be seen and heard. And I'm sure you might have had a lot of interesting experiences. For example, you might have taken these unplanned stops at places and had wonderful exchanges or conversations with people. With sure, sure. No, in fact, one of my most memorable moments was when I let off the jeep one day and I saw a bunch of women, uh, manifestly poor women, working in a very muddy and slushy field and I rushed towards them and they came out and they saw me alighting to approach me and the one woman said, oh, don't come too close so we're all covered in dirt. And I said, but your dirt is building the nation. Tell me who you are, what you're doing. And it turned out these were poor women from uh, the constituency who were being employed under what is now called the Mahatma Gandhi Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, Uh which guarantees 100 days of paid employment to one member of every poor rural family. So uh, these are people who were doing this project in order to earn those 100 days of of, uh, minimum wage, which in Kerala in those days was 125 rupees a day. It's now gone up to 160. Uh, but uh, but the women's stories were really moving. They were all basically the ones who were providing for their families with this work. And one woman told me how she had a handicapped daughter and that the only way she was able to keep that daughter at home with her was because of the money she was making from this particular uh, work. And it was it was profoundly both revelatory of the, the desperation and the needs uh, of my, my own voters but equally of how effective government can be if it provides an opportunity like this through a scheme like this to actually put money in the hands of people who are willing to work for it uh, so that they don't lose their dignity in that process. They do useful work, uh, sort of minor development work, and at the same time they're able to proceed and get um, get a decent living out of it. Yeah. One last question about your writing, if you don't mind. All right. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you, writing and diplomacy are at two different ends. In diplomacy, there's a lot of reading between the lines, whereas in writing, one has to be as descriptive and vivid as possible. So how do you reconcile the fact that your hobby and profession are at two different ends? And secondly, where on earth do you find the time to write so much? Well, I don't find any time to write anymore, I'm afraid, but when I did manage to do it, um, I would have disagreed with your characterization because, in fact, uh, both writing and diplomacy require the careful, sensible, and precise use of words to convey precisely the degree of clarity or ambiguity that you desire. Uh, in my novels, I often raise questions that I consciously don't answer. I want the reader to do some thinking for themselves. I use uh, humor in wordplay, but I also have very often uh, two possible interpretations of the events I'm describing or the lines that are being spoken by my characters. In diplomacy, there are often things you say and how you say them matter. There are often things you leave unsaid and what you choose not to say matters. And that's very true in in good creative writing as well. Thanks a lot, Dr. Tharoor. Those were the questions that we had for you. And I appreciate the fact that you took out time to be on uh, our show. Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. And uh, for people out there who are listening to this, if you have any uh, comments on whatever has been discussed, please log on to www.theindicast.com and leave your comment out there. That's about it. Bye-bye.